It's good to come together today to worship our God, to praise Him in song, and to pray to Him even in song, as Brother Josh has mentioned just a couple of moments ago. I invite you to open in your Old Testaments to the book of Nehemiah, where we're going to spend some time today in looking at a couple of chapters that are relatively brief, but yet packed with all kinds of powerful lessons that help us to better serve our God. Thank you so much for being here. As Brother Brian mentioned at the outset of our services, we have a a number of individuals that are new to this congregation, uh, new to this community that are visiting with us. We're very thankful for your presence. You are an encouragement to us. Do not think that we don't notice that you're here, and we appreciate so much that you're here as much as we do our members. We have a lot of people who are traveling this time of year. That happens. And we're glad that they're able to be away and to spend time with family and friends. But we'll look forward to seeing them back. And we're glad to have those of you who are here regularly with us as well. One thing is universal, and that is all of us have challenges. All of us have problems. All of us have difficulties. We're going to talk about difficult days for disciples later this afternoon, Lord willing. But I want to start with the idea of difficulties together in our study together this morning by talking about problems, because we've all got them. All of us have some sort of a problem. It may be a uh, financial problem. It may be a medical problem. It may be a spiritual problem. And the best way for us to respond is to pray and to plan. And so we're going to talk about problems, prayers, and plans in the study of our, in the course of our study together today. And we're going to use Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, and I'm going to trust that you are relatively familiar with the story of Nehemiah. If you're not, you'll be more familiar with him today uh, than you would have been before, but I do encourage you to go and read, if not the entire book of Nehemiah, at least the first couple of chapters Uh, a little more leisurely sometime this week, because it will help you, it will inspire you. Nehemiah is a favorite character of mine, as it is many of yours, because of his visionary leadership and because of the way that he responded to the problems that were put before him. And rather than ignoring those problems, he says, you know what, I'm going to face them head on. I'm going to pray to my Lord, and I'm going to plan accordingly. So we're going to talk about that in the course of our study together this morning. First of all, I want us to just ask the question about how should I respond to problems? There are different uh, ways that we can respond to the challenges that we have in life. One of those is we bury our heads in the sand and say, well, we'll just pretend they're not there. Or we'll just kind of duck and cover and hope that they'll go away in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But that's not always the way things are. And among the many ways that we can study Nehemiah is to look at him and how he responded to the problems that faced the ancient city of Jerusalem and to the people that he loved so dearly. You know, if we were to give Nehemiah a title, we could come up with a lot of different ways of looking at him. Some would say that Nehemiah is a motivator, and certainly he is. He motivated his people just like he motivates us. And any good preacher or Bible class teacher or spiritual mentor will motivate you as well. 
Some have even called him visionary, where he was able to see beyond the scope of the dismal state of affairs of the city and say, we can do great things here and we will do great things here. Some have suggested that Nehemiah is one of the greatest of teachers, and I think that certainly is the case. Not the greatest teacher that has ever been around, because that belongs to Jesus. He was the greatest and the master teacher himself. But Nehemiah was a teacher and who modeled a behavior of leadership in showing people where to go and what to do. And finally, we could look at him as being a problem solver. And that is what we're going to talk mostly about today as to how he solved problems and the things that he recognized in solving the challenges that came his way. So this is a very application-driven lesson or sermon in the sense that we're looking at the historical side of Nehemiah, but we're applying that to our lives and how we can be individuals whose saints today considering points that will help us to respond to problems. These are not easy sometimes to do because sometimes problems are challenging and they are, by their very definition, a problem for us to solve. So I want to begin by reading a couple of verses in Nehemiah chapter 1. And we read here in about verse 2 that, uh, uh, of Nehemiah chapter 1, where Nehemiah says in response to what the status of the city is, he says, I'm asking them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. In, in many ways, Nehemiah is doing what you and I would do if we were separated, especially without the advent of technology, from our hometown and our home people and the people that we loved. How are things back home? How are things back in the, in the farmland? How are things back in the city? Whatever the case may be. And you want to hear good news. You want to hear, well, things are going well and they're prospering and the people are happy and everyone's doing great. But that's not the report that Nehemiah got. It says the survivors who are left from the captivity and in the province are there in great distress and in great reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And of course, historically, some 24 to 2,500 years ago, this was in an era where if you did not have walls around your city and gates that were secure, you might as well not even have a city in the first place. And so this was a very devastating set of news and update that Nehemiah receives. And you can see Nehemiah here in verse 4 just saying, I cannot bear this news. This makes me so very sad. This is a problem that needs to be solved. He says, when I heard, I sat down and I wept and I mourned. Notice not just for a few moments and then said, well, okay, life will go on. But for many days, and I was fasting and I was praying before the Lord God of heaven. And he says, this is what I prayed in verse 5. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Incidentally, we call a lot of things awesome, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you want to talk about something that's really awesome, it's God. He is God, awesome, reverent. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open so that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. So this isn't a one-time prayer. It's a continual prayer. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. There's a lot that we can learn about prayer in looking, about, in looking at Nehemiah. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a second. I want to look at four observations, and I want to start here in chapter 1 in the text that we've read from. And I want us to acknowledge the fact that it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, that challenges are going to come our way. I would like to be able to stand before you this morning and give you this great oration like we talked about in Acts chapter 25 and make you feel all better by saying, once you become a follower of God, all challenges are void and done with. Wouldn't it be wonderful that you come up out of the waters of baptism, not only forgiven of sin, that's factual, but then you are void of problems. All of your financial problems are taken care of. Your health problems are cured. Uh, You don't have to worry about going to work anymore, or at least work is going to be a whole lot easier than what it was ever seen before. Uh, You don't have to worry about your children and raising them. Everything is just going to be on automatic pilot, and life would be great. But that's not the way it works. That doesn't mean that becoming a Christian is unimportant or not valuable. But we need to appreciate that noting when challenges come is important. It's not a matter of if they will come. I want you to consider five things Nehemiah did in turning to God, noting that challenges were going to come his way. And these are, of course, very uh, applicable to what we do. Number one, when we know that challenges are going to come, even in spite of the challenges, we should praise the Lord. There is never a time where when we say, you know what, I just don't have time to praise my God. We always praise the Lord. We come together on occasions like this and we communally uh, praise the Lord. We do that in common. But we should certainly do so in the way that Jeremiah does, or Jeremiah, that Nehemiah does. Jeremiah does it too. The, 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 the Mayas can sometimes get you, right? I got a case of the Mayas today. But Nehemiah here in chapter 1 is an individual who says, I'm going to praise my Lord. And that's easy to do when you get a raise. It's easy to do when you've had a a healthy child that's just been born. It's easy to do when you've gone to the doctor and you've gotten a clean bill of health. But it's hard sometimes to praise God when things go wrong. And we will make reference to Job at least once or twice to this morning. But Job is a character who says, who am I to take the good that comes from the Lord and then not take the bad that comes in this life and not praise God simultaneously? I've got to be a person that says, even in spite of difficulties, I'm going to praise my Lord. Let me suggest to you, secondly, we should acknowledge the Lord's promises In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Your covenant and your mercy is with those who love you and observe your commandments. So one of the things that you might do that might make it very practical in dealing with the challenges that come your way is to say, you know what? You have made promises to me in the past, Lord, and you are going to keep those promises that you have made. You always have. 
And you know what we sometimes do, when I say we, I mean you, and I mean me, is we say, well, God's kept his promises in the past. Is he going to continue doing that in the future as if God is certainly or, or suddenly going to just stop living as the Lord? And that's not the way that he conducts himself. Our God loves us and will always keep his promises. Even the best of friends don't always keep their promises in this world. But we can always count on the Lord keeping his promises. Let me suggest to you thirdly that we should confess our sin. There is value in confession. You know, it's been said and nicknamed that confession is good for the soul. There's something right about that, though, because there in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, we have acted very corruptly against you. Now, that's not a popular message necessarily to preach or to teach that we should confess our sins. But we need to admit to the Lord we are wrong. When a challenge comes our way, it may be because we have done wrong. It may be because we have done right, barring from 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4. But when we have done wrong, we need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. And he says, we've acted corruptly. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. There is something to be said about personal accountability. And personal accountability is neither personal nor accountable these days for so many people. Where it's someone else's fault as to why you did wrong. But I'm responsible for the one behind the wheel. Whether it's literally driving the car and breaking those rules or whether it be figuratively driving that vehicle in this world. Let me suggest to you, number four, that we should know the importance of being obedient to our Lord. Look at verse 8. He says, remember, I pray. And Nehemiah, if you want to study the, the book of Nehemiah by looking at the word remember or remembrance, that's one way to study Nehemiah. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, bring them to a place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Nehemiah says, I have to repent and obey. And then in my prayer, I am pleading to the Lord for help. I am accepting that challenges are going to come. Verse 11, he says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We should plead for help. When we accept that challenges will come, it doesn't necessarily make them easier. But consider, if you would, these very basic questions. Why did Nehemiah pray? And there's a lot of good, right answers to that question. And the answers to that question that are appropriate and uh, are legitimate are the same answers as to why we pray. So if I were to ask you, why do we pray? Why did Nehemiah pray? Why did the great servants of the Lord of old pray? You might say, uh, sure, because it's commanded, and that's true. We pray because it is commanded. But is that the only reason that we pray? And the answer is absolutely no. 
the things that we do in following God's commands, the more mature we grow as Christians, become more logical in the way that we understand them. We, We get our minds wrapped around, now I know why we sing. Now I know why we come together on the Lord's Day to partake of the Lord's Supper. It starts making sense. It starts clicking, and the light bulbs start going on. And sure, you could say it's for our guidance. But is it not, always, not also, and I wanted to be careful with this, and I debated whether or not I should make this point, because you may get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. Please understand what I'm saying, and let me say the whole thing before you judge me on it. But I believe that prayer is very, in the words of Barney Fife, therapeutic. Or it's therapeutic, right? It's therapeutic. Some of you got that. But God designed it for therapy. And you may say, well, I don't understand what you mean by that. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been praying to the Lord and then actually as you are drawing your prayer to a close, you find yourself feeling better, stronger, more able to meet the challenges that come your way? Has that ever happened to you that once you say amen, you open your eyes and you get off your knees or you step out of the car if you were praying while you were driving, wherever the case may be, you say, you know what? My problems are still there, but I feel a little bit better because God is there for me. God wants us to pray because, yes, it's commanded, because, yes, he wants us to communicate with him. But I'm convinced that he wants us to pray just like Nehemiah did because it helps us to grow and to become stronger in service to him. And I hope you understand what I mean by that particular point. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that we need to remember from Nehemiah that when challenges come our way, that time is a helpful teacher. Not always easy, but time is helpful. Someone once said time heals all wounds. That's probably not true because there are some of you that have been dealing with wounds for 10, 20, 30 years where someone is spiritually unfaithful and that time hasn't healed that wound. But does time help? Sometimes, a little bit because time is a helpful teacher. We want results to problems and we want them now. We want to pray to God for patience, like James chapter 1 tells us to, and then we are upset when the next morning we wake up and we have not mastered patience. Or we pray for patience and then regret praying for it because we got the lesson the hard way in learning patience. But the fact of the matter is, is it doesn't always work that way. We need to be understanding of Lord's time and the Lord's ways. Here's the thing, and I was recently talking about this with some of our younger people in a very brief study on Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a different direction. But in chapter 1, it talks about the month of Shizlev, and then there's a different month, Nisan, in chapter 2, verse 1. And if we're not careful, and I've done this, I'll study my Bible without really understanding what those months are about and why they are inserted. Sometimes it's for historical accuracy and for historical uh, dating. But between chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, a period of four months have transpired. So my question is, is so you have a period from January to basically May. You have a period of about four months where 
time has gone on. And then Nehemiah picks up back with the story and, and records, or the Holy Spirit records for us, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But why did the Holy Spirit include this detail? Was it just to get an appropriate word count to make the professor happy? No, of course not. Is there some reason that the four-month period is inserted into the text? And I think the answer is yes. There may be more than one right answer to why that is the case, but I want you to consider three lessons about time being a helpful teacher. Number one, sometimes grief lasts longer than we'd prefer it to. And that's just a fact. When you have lost a loved one or when a child of yours is unfaithful, or when a sibling of yours is unfaithful, and you go through months and months, if not years and years of that, you say, when is it going to end? Sometimes grief lasts longer than we want it to. Remember Job? Remember all the horrible things that happened to him, but yet in all these things he did not sin against the Lord with his lips, the Holy Spirit tells us. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that time is helpful in teaching us because sometimes it takes time in order to prepare for a big task. Luke chapter 14 talks about the idea of counting the cost and preparing yourself ahead of time. And that's certainly something to be thought about when we think about a big task. If you've got a big report due for school, if you've got a big task at work, uh, you generally do not wait until the, the morning of or the night before to do that. Uh, I remember... When I graduated from college years ago in the Stone Age, that when I was preparing my stone tablets in my portfolio, as I was chiseling them out, sounds like something Bruce would say. But I remember as I was preparing my 300, 400-page portfolio of everything I had supposedly learned over the course of four years, I remember preparing for that weeks and months and even years in advance because I knew that to come up with three to four hundred pages worth of material was going to take a long time to at least prove that I had thought I had learned something over the course of those four years. The same is true when you, when your boss comes to you and says, I've got a task for you. You say, well, when do you want it done by? Well, I want it done by November. You say, well, it's only June. Why are you giving me so much time? Because let me explain to you the task. Sometimes it takes a long time to get the job done. And being a Christian is like running that proverbial marathon that requires the effort from us. And then thirdly, sometimes time helps us to better appreciate the Lord. You know, I've asked the question, uh, and I think the, the point is easily made, and the answer is, is apparent. What do you think Nehemiah was doing during those four months? Do you think he was just twiddling his thumbs, looking at his watch, and marking the days off the calendar until he got to the month of Nisan? Or was he busy preparing and busy praying harder and more seriously? I think that's what was going on. Speaking of the subject of seriousness, let me go to the third observation that I think that we learned from Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 and how we deal with problems. And let's just acknowledge something that we all feel, that we've all felt, or that we all will feel, and that is sadness is serious. Sadnessness is a serious thing. To be sad is serious. A major part of the second chapter is the sadness he endured. And remember, it's not a matter of 
when or if. It's a matter of it's going to happen to us. Let me suggest to you three things at the outset here. One, it would have been uncustomary for Nehemiah to be sad in the king's presence. We'll go back to chapter 2 and let's read verse 1, part B. He says, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And he says, I had never been sad in the presence of the king before. And this, of course, was part of his job. Uh, Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, and I think we sometimes shortchange cupbearers, was more than just the person that prepared drinks. He would have been a, 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 an advisor, a confidant. He would have been someone that the king would have depended on. And he would have bounced ideas off of. And this was in an era, we are told historically, some twenty-four to 2,500 years ago, that if you went before the emperor, before the king, before the dictator, whatever word you want to use for your leader at that particular time, and you were sad in front of him, and that made him sad or made him angry, he may very well say, you're fired, or worse yet, off with your head. So it was your responsibility to be uh, happy and to be joyous in front of the leader. And so it would have been very uncustomary for him. And it says in chapter 2 and verse 2, I became dreadfully afraid because being sad before the king was dangerous. Because the third thing that I hinted at just a moment or so ago was historically, the king's presence should make for automatic happiness. I mean, if you're in my presence, you're going to be happy, the king says, because that's the way that I operate. And that's how important I am. And it's a joy to be in my presence. Well, consider, if you would, three things that we learn from Nehemiah's sadness in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And that is this. One, when we're overly sad, shouldn't it surprise our worldly friends? Think about that for just a moment. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong for us to be sad. Nor am I suggesting that it's inappropriate for us to be upset. But it reminds me of the funeral service where everyone was crying over the older lady who had passed away who was a faithful child of God. And a little seven-year-old went up to someone who was crying and said, What are you crying about? Wasn't she a Christian? Perspective changes everything. So we can be sad, but we need to make sure that we govern that sadness with a sense of, I am happy. You know, Paul talks about this in his letter to the church at Philippi repeatedly by saying, I am overjoyed and I am joyous in spite of the difficulties. Brian talked about that a little bit in the Bible class this morning, where if we were imprisoned for the cause of Christ, Would we be moping and woe is me? Or would we say, you know what? I'd rather not be in prison, but I'm going to use this to my advantage and do what Paul and Silas did in Acts 16 and pray and sing and praise and teach. When sin is involved, we should be upset. It should cause us to be sad. Chapter 2, verse 3, may the king live forever. Those are the first words out of Nehemiah's mouth. Why should my face not be sad? 
You see, this was uncustomary. This was different. This was uh, out of character for Nehemiah. The city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. And this is more than just a physical destruction. It is a embodiment or a precursor to this spiritual destruction that the people had faced, would face, and, and, and would continue to face going forward. And what do we do when we are sad? What is the best possible way when you're upset to get a little less upset? There's one answer, and it starts with a P, and that is to make sure that we pray. Now, that won't mean that when the amen is done and our eyes are open and we're off our knees that all the problems go away. We've already established that point in our study together. But when we are sad, the best thing for us to do is to pray. In verse 4, the king said to me, what do you request? And what did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah prayed to the Lord. You ever wonder what was in the content of that prayer? How long that prayer was? A friend of mine from the West Coast used to call this an arrow prayer. One of those prayers that you only have three seconds to pray and then say, Amen. You can't say, King, just give me 10 minutes and I'll be back with you. <laughs> not going to work. That's not the how it goes. What do you request? So I pray to the God of heaven. And then in verses 5 and following, he made his request. And we see how things go from there. That brings me to a fourth and a final observation. And that is, there are visionaries like Nehemiah. And visionaries like Paul and Peter and James. And then there are villains. There are those who will do everything they can to destroy us. The account of Nehemiah shows the presence of a visionary as well as of villains. And we don't have the time to go and read the rest of chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. But let me suggest to you that for every Nehemiah there is, there's always going to be a Sanballat and a Tobiah. And you remember who Sambalat and Tobiah are? If you don't, read the rest of Nehemiah. But these are the villains. These are the bad guys in this story. These are the guys who come to Nehemiah and to Nehemiah's followers and say, you guys are silly. You think you're going to rebuild the wall? You think you're going to rebuild the city? You think you're going to be able to set up something that is uh, like the former days uh, in the past? Not going to happen. In fact, we are going to mock you and we are going to watch you the whole way and make fun of you the whole way. And we'll do everything we can to destroy you in that process. The Bible's reference to these enemies of Nehemiah is more than just there for context. Let me suggest to you in final that three considerations need to be met when it comes to visionaries and villains. Number one is this. Our reputations matter a lot. Read with me a couple of final verses in chapter 2 before we close. In chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? 
When will you return? And it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Do you ever think about how quick that went? I, we don't know exactly how long that speech lasted. The Holy Spirit may have not included every word that Nehemiah said or every question that the king would have asked. But did you ever stop and think about, it's kind of like the stables commercial. That was easy. But was it really that easy? Or was it the result of a reputation on the part of Nehemiah where the king said, there's something special about him. If he asks for something, then I'm going to listen to him. You know, it's kind of like a, a coach on the sideline who every time you go down, if you're refereeing, says something to you. Eventually, what do you do? The hearing aid goes off. <laughs> you become very selective in what you listen to, right? But if a coach never says a single word to you in the course of a 40-minute game, and then in the third period makes one statement to you or asks one question, the reputation is such that I may want to listen to what she is saying and what he is saying. Nehemiah has this reputation where he may not say much to the king, but when he does say something, it is always of repute. It is always of good value. And it reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where our good brother read for us from, where it says that a good name is better than something that is precious. Nehemiah had a name. Our reputations matter. Secondly, doing the Lord's work is always going to disturb someone. When you go to church, when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you do good to others, when you teach the truth, when you stand up and defend the truth, someone is going to be offended by it. In chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, Sanballat the Horite, Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. By the way, that's just mind-boggling to me. Seeking the well-being of the children of Israel caused Sambalat and Tobiah to be deeply distressed. That's some sordid character flaws there on their part. But sometimes doing the Lord's work will disturb some, and visionaries are not short-sighted or nearsighted. Notice chapter 2, verse 11. I came to Jerusalem. I was there for three days. I rose in the night, and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put on my heart, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. More to the context can be established by reading all the verses that precede and follow. But simply put, we need to be men and women like Nehemiah who say, you know what? This is bad. The situation, the hand I've been dealt is not a good one. But I can do good with this. And that is true with us in terms of church membership, in terms of our families, in terms of our work environments, in terms of our individual lives. The fact of the matter is, is when something difficult comes our way, we have to be visionary and say, you know what? I can work with this because the Lord is there with me. Problems, prayers, and plans. Let me conclude with this, that we need to be men and women who need to face our problems with prayer to God and plans. When we encounter our problems, let's turn to God in prayer and then 
be men and women who make plans according to his will. Too often what we do is we throw up our hands, literally or otherwise, and say, I can't do it. God says, yes, you can. And in fact, the verse that is on the walls of some of your homes and probably one of the most memorized verses in the New Testament does say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, the context for that matters, but it certainly fits the point that we're making in the course of our study together this morning, that I can do anything that the Lord wants me to do with his help. It may not always be easy. There will be challenges. There will be problems. And as we'll talk about, Lord willing, this afternoon, there will be difficult days for the Lord's disciples. But I am ready to meet those challenges head on with the Lord on my side. I hope that this has been helpful to you. Hope that it has been engaging. And I hope that for those that are not Christians, it has been motivational in the sense that you say, I, I want to become a Christian. I want to be a part of a family of believers and a follower of God and a child of the Father eternal so that I have the benefit of prayer and planning to deal with the problems that the Lord is going to allow me to face. We encourage you to become a Christian today, to be baptized, to have your sins washed away. If that's something that you need to do this morning, we're ready to assist you. If, as Brother Brian pointed out in the outset of our services, you are confused about something that I've said or something that we've done or the way in which we've done it, you are not going to offend me or offend us by saying, can you explain why you said what you said or why you did what you did? We'll just give you a biblical explanation and share with you from the Bible why these things are true and why we're doing what we're doing. If we can help you to become a stronger child of God as well, we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. If we can assist you in any way, let us know while we stand and while we sing.